Due to the nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of war, child abuse, violence, and murder. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Ranger Mark Nesbitt sped through Gettysburg National Military Park before he skidded to a stop in a driveway. He was responding to a report of an intruder in his superintendent's home. Once Nesbitt parked, the superintendent, his three daughters, and a visiting park ranger explained they'd all heard the same heavy boots stomping across the second floor. The superintendent pointed Nesbitt to the back. The intruder sounded like he was headed to the second-story window. They thought he was going to jump and make a run for it. Nesbitt grabbed his flashlight and bolted around the house, expecting to see the criminal fleeing for his life. But the backyard was empty. The ranger and superintendent emerged from inside. They just checked the whole building. No sign of the intruder there, either. The superintendent tried to shrug it off. Maybe it was one of his daughter's boyfriends playing a prank. But to Nesbitt, it was obvious that wasn't the case. There may not have been anyone inside, but the house wasn't empty. Like almost every other inch of Gettysburg, it was haunted. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first and only episode on the Ghosts of Gettysburg. The site of the bloodiest battle ever fought on American soil is also allegedly home to countless restless spirits. Today, we'll cover the nightmarish clash between the Union and the Confederacy and retell some of the most famous and terrifying ghost stories from its grounds. Then, we'll try to explain why Gettysburg seems to be a hotbed of spectral activity. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When Gettysburg was founded in 1786, it was a meeting place for travelers heading in all directions, a peaceful crossroads town of farmers and innkeepers. But less than a century later, that all changed. By the mid-1800s, the nation was buzzing with rumblings about secession, southern states breaking away from the Union to form their own government. When Abraham Lincoln was elected president, that became a reality. The first state to leave was South Carolina, 
followed by 10 other southern states over the next few months. They called themselves the Confederate States of America. In April 1861, the Confederates made their first move. They attacked Fort Sumter in South Carolina. Days later, President Lincoln rallied troops for the Union. And so, the Civil War began. For the next two years, the armies battled throughout the South, with most of the fighting happening in Virginia and Tennessee. More often than not, the results favored the North. However, that started to change when General Robert E. Lee took hold of the Army of Northern Virginia. He started strategizing. He needed an offensive victory, preferably one on Union soil. So Lee led nearly 72,000 Confederate soldiers across the Mason-Dixon line. But even more Union men, led by General George Meade, followed hot on their heels. Rather than risk an ambush from Meade's army, Lee stopped his troops where they were, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Early on July 1st, 1863, Lee sent some men into town for supplies. On their way, they literally ran into a Union cavalry division. The first shot rang out at around 7.30 a.m. The Battle of Gettysburg was on. Most of the fighting happened in close quarters in dense woods with the Confederates on foot and the Union on horseback. Bayonets and swords swung wildly. Guns fired nonstop. Many rounds were the most popular ammunition back then, and they were particularly brutal. Made of soft lead and slow moving, they would shatter bone upon impact, and they rarely exited the body. If a bullet to the head didn't kill you instantly, it could turn you into a zombie, shuffling around aimlessly as it burrowed deeper into your brain. Meanwhile, getting shot in the arm or leg required immediate amputation. And cannon artillery? Well, it didn't usually leave enough of a person for anyone to identify after. As the fighting dragged on, the South managed to break through Union lines, forcing them out of the city. By nightfall, the Union retreated to Cemetery Hill. Gettysburg belonged to the Confederacy. Lee didn't want to waste any time before mounting another attack. But one of his generals worried the Union was too well positioned. Lee hesitated. And overnight, three more Union Corps worth of men arrived on the scene. His moment had passed. The fight raged across the natural formations in the area, with self-explanatory names like Wheatfield, Cemetery Ridge, and the Peach Orchard. Troops clashed over a hill called Little Round Top and through a boulder-covered rise dubbed Devil's Den. Lee's men managed to chip away at Meade's Union flanks, but the Union center around Little Round Top held strong. After 48 hours, the number of casualties neared 35,000, the largest two-day total of the entire Civil War. Despite the losses, Lee thought he needed just one last push to secure victory. The next morning, he ordered one of his officers to lead a charge against the Union stronghold on Cemetery Ridge. But General Meade had anticipated the move. Both sides pelted each other with heavy fire. 
It was the largest artillery barrage in the history of the Western Hemisphere. When the cannons stopped, Pickett's men charged ahead. It was a straight march across the empty field without so much as an oak tree for protection. They were quickly surrounded by additional Union regiments. They'd walked into a death trap. Pickett's charge, as it came to be known, was one of the Confederacy's biggest catastrophes of the war. More than half of the Southern soldiers who participated never came home, either perishing then and there or getting captured. After three days of almost nonstop fighting, General Lee retreated. General Meade and the Union were victorious. The Battle of Gettysburg was a turning point. While the war would drag on for another two years, the Confederacy had no chance of recovering from the devastating loss. In all, around 51,000 people were killed, wounded, or went missing, though some historians think the actual number is higher. Many were buried right where they fell, if there was enough to bury at all. Some were piled into mass graves. Others were just left to rot. Those who survived walked away from the bloodiest battle of the deadliest war in American history. But the dead, it seems they never left. Coming up, the ghosts of Gettysburg. Now, back to the story. Towards the end of the 19th century, the area outside the city of Gettysburg was designated Gettysburg National Military Park. This was where most of the fighting took place. These days, over one million people visit annually. One of the most popular destinations is the Soldiers' National Cemetery, where many fallen Union soldiers were laid to rest. While making the rounds there one night, a park ranger spotted a lone figure standing in the mist. It was an older man with a blue Union coat and a long beard. Before the ranger could approach and tell him to scram, the older man ducked behind a tree and disappeared. This happened again and again. Visitors and rangers alike reported sightings, always in the same gloomy corner of the National Cemetery, near the grave of Captain William Miller. Then, in the 1970s, someone realized Captain Miller, who'd received a Medal of Honor in life, wasn't acknowledged as a recipient on his gravestone. The government quickly remedied the situation with gold inlay displaying his proper title. His ghost hasn't been seen since. After the war, stories like that of Captain Miller began to pop up all across Gettysburg, they weren't about just one ghost in one location. Sometimes, entire regiments are seen marching across the foggy farmland. They'll appear out of nowhere, sometimes so lifelike they're mistaken for a group of reenactors. Witnesses watch in awed silence as the dedicated soldiers march in perfect formation only to fade into the ether. There are so many sightings, it's impossible for them all to be tricks of the mind. About 30 years ago, park ranger turned local historian Mark Nesbitt, who we heard about at the start of today's episode, decided to catalog the haunted tales. Some experiences were his own. 
Others were confessions from confused and frightened visitors. According to Nesbitt, one of the most active spots in the park is Devil's Den, a group of massive, maze-like limestone rocks and a focal point of the battle. In the 1970s, a woman was trying to take a picture of the site, but after getting lost in the maze, she wasn't sure how to get back to her car. As she contemplated where to go, she got that very distinct feeling that she wasn't alone. Sure enough, she spotted a barefoot man standing next to her. He had long hair and a beard and wore a big floppy hat. He smiled and pointed behind her. That was the way back. The woman turned to look down the way he'd pointed, and when she swiveled back, he was gone. Another time, a photographer set up his tripod to capture the setting sun over Devil's Den. There was no one else in sight. It was perfect. He took a whole roll of film. He rushed home, eager to see the shots. But when he developed them, his landscape photographs showed a barefoot man with a shaggy beard and a floppy hat standing on top of the rocks. The photographer was certain no one was there when he took the photos. A note about his appearance. It might seem odd that a random hippie-like ghost is wandering around Gettysburg, but Nesbitt has a theory. Confederate soldiers from Texas usually looked a lot more ragged than their counterparts from the rest of the South. Given how far they'd traveled, their clothes and shoes were often well-worn by the time they reached the battlefield, and they often didn't have the chance to pause for a haircut. It may have given some a distinct look on the front lines, long hair and big floppy hats, and some of those possibly scruffy Texans died right there at Devil's Den. Nisbet had his share of odd experiences at the park, but some of the most compelling evidence comes from the stories of one of his co-workers, Ranger Becky Lyons. Becky told Nesbitt about a co-worker, another female ranger at the battlefield. We'll call her Tina. One night, Tina had just finished her shift when she was driving past the formation known as the Wheatfield when she saw a handful of large bonfires burning in the low-hanging fog. But the Wheatfield was supposed to be empty. No one was allowed to camp there, and there weren't any reenactments scheduled. Maybe some wayward campers had wandered into the wrong field. She radioed the ranger station and asked them to go check it out. The next day, Tina got a call from the on-duty ranger. Not only was the field empty, but there was no sign anyone had been there at all. No tire tracks or debris, and no burn marks whatsoever. Tina thought he must have had the wrong field. So on her lunch break, she went back to see for herself. As she strolled across the unsullied grass, a chill rattled her bones. The ranger was right. The field was pristine. Now, the wheat field is where weary Confederate and Union soldiers battled nose to nose on day two of the Battle of Gettysburg, reaching a brutal stalemate. The fires Tina saw perfectly mimicked the kind they would have lit in the evening after the fighting. According to Nesbitt, phantom fires aren't unusual for the area. While shooting the 1993 film Gettysburg, the cast and crew frequently saw them burning. 
And the hauntings didn't stop at campfires. Becky Lyons' house was in downtown Gettysburg, an old structure that was around during the battle. Obviously, a building that old needed a lot of upkeep, and Becky spent much of her time getting it into tip-top shape. Becky wanted the place to keep its original feel, so she bought a lookbook of Civil War-era wallpaper swatches. She couldn't decide on a swatch, and after a long day of renovations, decided to get out of the house and grab some dinner. Becky closed the book and locked the door behind her. When she returned, she found the book of samples open. Nothing else had been disturbed. There weren't any signs of a break-in. She looked at the open page and thought the swatch was nice. She decided to go with it. When it came time to strip the walls, Becky realized it was the exact same wallpaper as the original. Someone in the house had a preference. As for who the ghost was, it's difficult to say. During the battle, soldiers from both sides flooded private homes and businesses. Snipers set up in attics. Kitchens turned into operating rooms. Parlors became makeshift officer headquarters. It's no wonder some of their spirits seemed to linger in town. Another night, after Becky had settled into her new digs, she was relaxing at home when the distinct smell of pipe tobacco filled the air. She lived in town, and it wasn't unusual for smells to waft in from the street. But the sound of the front door did catch Becky off guard. She turned to check it out, and the door was still shut. She tried to brush it off. Maybe she couldn't trust her own senses. As Becky debated with herself, an older man wearing a Union Army coat strolled right through the closed door. Becky called out, but the officer didn't pay any attention. He walked across the room and straight up the stairs to the second floor before his footsteps faded away. Uncle Joe, as Becky came to call him, was a frequent visitor. She never felt threatened. According to Mark Nesbitt, most of the spirits that haunt Gettysburg are harmless. That is, except for the undead residents of the Homestead Orphanage. Coming up, the orphans of war trapped in a dungeon. Now, back to the story. The field hospitals of Gettysburg are often characterized as medieval. Makeshift butcher shops filled with novice surgeons eagerly hacking off arms and legs without a second thought. And by today's standards, there is some truth to that. Before the Civil War, most states didn't have a strong standardized process for licensing doctors. They usually gained experience through apprenticeships and a handful of accredited classes. Many had never done so much as a dissection. Germ theory was still in its infancy. Doctors wearing wool uniforms and dripping sweat from the July heat never thought to wash their hands. Their tools were treated with nothing more than a wipe of a dirty cloth. There were a few silver linings, though. Doctors on the battlefield experimented with bromine and carbolic acid to clean wounds. Anesthesia was invented a few decades before the combat broke out, and chloroform was available on the front lines. But considering that 75% of surgeries during the Civil War were amputations, 
not everyone got the benefit of these medical advancements. In Gettysburg, amputations often took place in field hospitals like the Homestead Orphanage. Before the battle, the building had been a private residence, but after the Confederates pushed the Union out of town, it became an operating room. Surgeons worked days on end and were judged on their speed. They would quickly saw through injured arms and legs and toss them out the nearest door or window into a nightmarish pile of severed limbs. After the war, the country was filled with thousands of orphans with nowhere to go. That's when the Homestead Orphanage actually became an orphanage. By all accounts, the first headmistress was a kind and beloved local figure. But the second, a woman named Rosa Carmichael, garnered a very different reputation. Rosa was a cruel woman, known to starve and beat the children in her care. According to tour guides in town, she had an equally cruel teenage assistant known as Stick Boy. As his name implies, he carried a long stick that he used to poke and beat the children. There were even reports he would put them in barrels of ice-cold water and chain them to the walls. This would happen in Rosa's favorite place in the orphanage, the basement, which she called the dungeon. There, she and Stick Boy would shackle misbehaving children for days on end without food or water. This went on for years until 1877, when a neighbor discovered a child that had been locked in an outhouse for days. Finally, Rosa was arrested for child abuse. She was found guilty and fined $20. After her arrest, the orphanage was shut down. Allegedly, there were several missing children unaccounted for, but visitors still see and feel Rosa and her protege. Today, people who drop by the old orphanage report being poked and pinched, a constant feeling of being watched. In the basement, there are numerous reports of chains rattling and children crying. Visitors leave toys on a table for the ghost children to play with. Oftentimes, the staff will later find the toys scattered across the floor. According to the manager, on one occasion, a doll he hadn't seen before showed up on the table. He thought it was nice and took it upstairs to the visitor's center, where he locked it in a display case. But a few days later, the toy was gone. His wife, who ran the visitor's center, said she never saw the doll, and for two weeks, it was MIA. The manager had almost forgotten about it when one morning he went back into the basement. There, back in its place on the table, was the doll. But its arms and legs had been ripped off. Even in death, Rosa wanted to ensure that children couldn't have nice things. As Mark Nesbitt tells it, the Homestead Orphanage is just one of many former field hospitals that are crawling with ghosts. Nearby at Gettysburg College, one of its oldest buildings was also the site of an active triage unit. Opened in 1837, Pennsylvania Hall is a gorgeous Greek revival building with giant pillars that frame a white exterior. A distinctive cupola looms high above the building a domed, turret-like watchtower. It is said during the battle, General Lee would watch the fighting from the cupola. 
More recently, a student we'll call Jack was studying in his dorm. He had a clear view of the cupola through his window, close enough he could make out every detail, especially the man wearing a navy coat and white union pants. With a look of desperation, the man leaned off the ledge, waving his arms back and forth like he was signaling for help. Panicked, Jack ran for his roommate. But when they came back, the man was gone. They assumed whomever he was, he must have gotten assistance. Jack pushed the thought from his mind until the next night when the man came back. The same clothing, the same frantic look, and once again, the moment Jack left to get his roommate, the man seemingly vanished. On the third night, the man reappeared. This time, Jack fetched his roommate quickly enough to show him the man in the blue coat was still there. Jack and his roommate sprinted down the hall and out of the building. They ran up to Pennsylvania Hall to see the man still frantically waving his arms. Up close, they could tell the stranger was ghostly pale. They begged him to tell them what he needed. But the man didn't seem to hear them. By the time Jack and his roommate returned to their dorm, he was gone. The lone sentinel, as he came to be known, returned night after night for a week straight. He's been making appearances ever since. But this hasn't stopped students and staff alike from using the facilities. For decades now, Pennsylvania Hall has served as an administrative building. According to Mark Nesbitt, late one night, two faculty members were in the elevator leaving the office after a long day. They were caught off guard when the elevator breezed past the first floor and took them to the basement instead. There was no reason for them to ever go down there. It was mostly used for storage. When the doors opened, they were greeted by a horror show. Civil War-era doctors sawed at thighs. Men screamed in agony. Soldiers lay on tables, faintly moaning as they took their last breaths. Some stumbled around like zombies, with bloody stumps hanging from their shoulders. The staff members stared, slack-jawed. They weren't sure if this was some elaborate prank or a gnarly reenactment. Just then, one of the zombie-like soldiers locked eyes with them. They froze. He didn't. The undead soldiers stepped toward them. The staffers smashed the first floor button. The zombie soldier was almost to them when the doors mercifully slid shut. The moment they reached the first floor, they ran to get security. But when they returned to the basement, it was, once again, an empty storage area. This story is just one of the many from Gettysburg College. There's a ghostly woman seen trying on students' clothes before disappearing into their closet. Dozens of Civil War-era soldiers, including a distinguished officer who sits in the audience during theater performances. Sometimes, he even gives notes to the actors on stage. All of Gettysburg has stories like this. We could spend hours recounting the various ghost stories and still only hit the tip of the iceberg. Mark Nesbitt has written eight different books on the subject, conveniently titled Ghosts of Gettysburg. Thousands of soldiers died in and around the city, most in savage ways. 
eviscerated by artillery shells or eaten alive by gangrenous infections, some slowly wasted away from gunshots. Unlike Captain Miller, whose ghost faded after he got his Medal of Honor, it's impossible to figure out who they all are and what they want. Something still ties them to the land, but unless we can determine what they lack and how to get it for them, they won't be able to rest. Sadly, many of these spirits will never find closure. There are too many, and the records from the time are too incomplete for anyone to solve all their unfinished business. And without that, the ghosts of Gettysburg seem doomed to relive their most dramatic days. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information, amongst the many sources we used, we found Mark Nesbitt's Ghosts of Gettysburg book series extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Jesse Harris, edited by Natalie Pritsovsky and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Chelsea Wood, recorded by Alex Button, produced by Bruce Kotovich, and sound designed by Kerry Murphy. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Richard Rossner. <laughs>